Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of Sharon's very clear and profound vision of the heart-mind path. If you are interested in supporting Sharon's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Sharon. So um, when Sharon uh, wrote to me a couple months ago and, and um, floated the idea that we could potentially have Reverend Angel here for one of these conversations, I was thrilled. Um, and somehow we were able to find a date and make it work for these two busy people. Sharon just came in from England and she's off again for to Wisconsin tomorrow. And Reverend Angel's been a million places since we met online um, so we're glad she landed in New York for a short time and could be here with us. Um, their, their topic tonight, bridging um, activism and spirituality, I think is something that many of us are interested in, in uh, hearing about. We've, I would imagine that many of you in this room um, are involved in some kind of contemplative practice or spiritual practice. And I think for those of us who are on this path, the idea of how we um, think about our lives in terms of activism in the world and our meditation cushion are on a lot of our minds. Um, I thought to say that this is a particularly difficult time for everyone, and then I was thinking about it, and I thought, actually, all time for human beings seems to be difficult. For the most part, we often choose to make everything much more complicated and difficult than, as many of you know, it really needs to be. Um, but we are at a particular stage, I think, um, evolutionary stage, and some of the issues that are before us right now are really important. Um, and so the idea of how we take a stand, or do we take a stand, or do we continue our contemplative practice and change ourselves so that we can offer that to the people we love. Um, I know it's on my mind, and I'm sure. So it turns out to be a topic I think that's particularly relevant this summer and as we head towards our presidential election. Um, I'd like to co thank our co-sponsors for this evening. Um, first, the Garrison Institute, a wonderful... Our friends and colleagues, um, and this is uh, part of what we call the Garrison Institute at the JCC Talks. Um, we do many wonderful events together over the year, several of which involve our beloved teacher, Sharon Salzberg. Um, there's information about the Garrison Institute out on the table and about upcoming retreats, so please do take the information. If you've never been to Garrison for a retreat, please go. It's heavenly there, um, and I'm just so happy to have them as partners. Our other wonderful co-sponsors this evening are our dear friends um, from the Upper West Side, the Community Meditation Center. So how many of the Sangha are here? Yay. Wow. Fantastic. Um, and I would just like, if you want to stand up or just wave the... Um, Founder and guiding teacher, Alan Locus, is here this evening. And his um, wonderful uh, wife and the director of the Community Meditation Center, Susanna Weiss. And thanks to the volunteers from CNC who came tonight to help us set things up. So without further ado, I'd like to just introduce um, Jane Collini, my colleague from the Garrison Institute, who's going to tell you just a little bit about these um, two wonderful speakers tonight. And once again, I'm grateful for your presence um, and that these teachers choose to be here with us at the JCC this evening and share their wisdom. 
Thank you. Thank you, Susie. Uh, she gave such a wonderful introduction of Garrison that I feel like there's nothing much left to say, uh, except that we're on a train line up the Hudson River, about an hour and 15 minutes, very convenient to New York City. We have over 100 retreats a year um, in a variety of uh, spiritual traditions, holistic uh, mind, uh, body uh, disciplines, and like-minded nonprofits who take time out for contemplative practice. So please come visit us. And um, also, both Angel and Sharon are very much involved at Garrison Institute, both as teachers, and Sharon happens to be on our board of directors. Um, I wanted to just take this opportunity to introduce them both. Um, it's hard to know what to say about Sharon. She sort of dominates the... Um, <laughs> she's so well-known and well-regarded and is among the sort of earliest uh, uh, teachers of uh, contemplative practice in America, having founded the uh, Insight Meditation Center, co-founded it, I think, in 1971. Do I have that right? The center? Yeah. 76, okay. Um, so um, her legacy is here with us today and has been um, notable for a long, long time. She's also the uh, writer of numerous New York Times best-selling books, the most recent being um, Real Happiness at Work, and um, also has another book which has just gone in draft to her publisher and will be published next spring, called Real Love. So we're all looking forward to that. Uh, that's Sharon. And then I have the honor of introducing uh, Angel Kyoto Williams, who I also have known for a number of years and worked with and feel extremely honored to be here introducing her. Uh, Angel is, this is a very interesting quote I found on the internet, that she's been called the most vocal and intriguing African-American Buddhist in America. I love that, and I think I agree with that thoroughly and totally. She is an author, an ordained Zen priest, and founder of the Center for Transformative Change. Uh, she has been bridging the worlds of contemplative practice and social justice for as long as we've known her name. This is her really very um, dedicated uh, sort of meaning for life. Uh, she, including her critically acclaimed book, being Black, Zen, and the Art of Living with Fearlessness and Grace, and then just recently published, along with Lama Rod Owens and Jasmine Snydela, no, Sidela, thank you, Sidela. Oh, hello, Jasmine. <laughs> Has just published Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation. So anyway, thank you, and um, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Sort of. Tables turned. <laughs> um, I, I enjoyed the other way. I know. Is there is there a real reason why it has to be this way? <laughs> is it for the video? Is it because we disappeared into? Really? Is it true? Is there any way it can go back to the way it was? We're just going to pantomime this whole talk. It's like. <laughs> 
no one's responding. So. Oh, yeah, okay. the, if this could go down, that would be That's great. so pleasant. More. <laughs> There's more work to do. Yay. Okay, well, you keep working on the lights and we'll begin. Um, it is a, a great delight to be here. I actually love the Jewish Community Center a lot. And uh, as many of you know, when hello, <laughs> when I teach uh, in New York City, it's very often... <laughs> that somebody did that for the lights. They were retaliating. Okay, there's a sound man here. He's going to come back. Um, uh, it's very often downtown, and so it's, it's not that... I come up town sometimes for the community meditation center you can fix it someone will fix it i come up town for the j- oh here he is he's so sad that it <laughs> happened it's all right she fixed it i think see we're just friends here together it's like thank you <laughs> don't leave whatever you do <laughs> okay so but here i am uptown which is great and it's an enormous delight and honor, in fact, to be here with Angel. Um, so, of course, I've been thinking about the various times we've run into each other through the years, including a kind of remarkable conference in Cleveland some years ago where I have this amazing memory of Angel where the, they were f- the food was a lot like bologna sandwiches on white bread and stuff. And at one point, she stood up <laughs> and she just said, you can't be talking. It was about love, right? can't be talking about love and giving us food like this, you know? Like, and I thought, oh, she is intriguing, whoever she is. Like, wow. That was pretty great. Uh, so we're going to start with uh, meditation. I'll guide you through it, and then we'll begin a conversation and then open it up for, for everybody. So I usually like, even if it's just for a few minutes, just for the chance for each of us to more fully arrive and, and get here. So if you could just feel your body where you're sitting. Settle your attention, your energy into your body and feel your breath wherever it's most predominant for you, wherever it's clearest for you. Because that's the most restful. So if you can find that place where the breath is strongest for you, bring your attention there and just rest. See if you can feel one breath. And then the next. Just the normal, natural breath. However it's appearing, however it changes. It's kind of remarkable, like no matter what we go through, no matter where we are, we have this anchor, we have this this centering point, if we remember. So you just rest your attention on the feeling of the breath. And as images or sounds or sensations or emotions may come up, if they're not all that strong, 
If you can stay connected to the breath, just see if it can flow on by. You're breathing. It's just one breath. But if something's strong enough to like pull you away, you get lost in thought, consumed, overcome by a fantasy, or you fall asleep, really don't worry about it. We say that's the most important moment, the next moment, after you've been gone, after you've been lost, after you've been disconnected. Then comes the kind of emergence where we have the chance to, first of all, gently let go. It's what one of my uh, teachers called exercising the letting go muscle. We have the chance to let go. And we have the chance to begin again. Instead of giving ourselves a hard time and being down on ourselves, we can let go and start over. Just bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes or lift your gaze. So thank you. So I thought I'd start by uh, telling a story. My mind went in two different places, so I'll start with one rather than confuse everybody. Uh, Tell the story and then ask Angel to speak to that or, you know, uh, tell us what it brings forth for her. And it's actually a story from my book I did just turn in a manuscript. I feel a little disoriented because for a couple of years I've had this thought in the back of my mind, as soon as I get home tonight I have to start writing. Like I can't, I can't let the time go. And then I have that thought and I think, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little weird. Um, but it is a book about love. It's called, as far as I know, it's called Real Love, which is a choice of the publisher. And... Uh, as it evolved, it, it, was, it became about three um, sections. You know, the first is love for oneself. 
And then there's love for an other, whether it's a parent or a child or a partner or a friend or whomever. And then the third is it's sort of a, a combination of love for all beings everywhere and love for life, which, which become one. So this is a story out of the third section, which um, uh, happened some years ago. I was uh, at a friend's house in western Massachusetts, and I ended up uh, spending the day with this man, Miles Horton, who was the founder of a place called the Highlander Folk School, um, which was a kind of training ground uh, at one point for civil rights uh, protesters and, and um, at later point for people beginning the environmental movement. And it was a really extraordinary place. Somebody did a documentary about it called You Gotta Move, um, which just got digitized like last year or two years ago. And it's, it's really a very interesting um, story. But anyway... Uh, I was talking to Miles Horton, who was the founder, and this was a place where, you know, they were brought up on trial. I mean, there were all kinds of pressures, and um, it was a very difficult situation in a lot of ways. And um, he asked me about myself, and I talked about being a meditation teacher, which he wasn't that interested in. Uh, But then I said, what do you do? You know, like, with that kind of pressure and vision and... Uh, effort, you must do something just to like have some resiliency or get a break. And he said, they were in Tennessee. He said, I look at the mountains. I just sit and look at the mountains. And then somehow we segued to loving kindness meditation, which is such a big part of what I do. And he looked at me and he said, Marty, that's Martin Luther King Jr. Marty used to say to me all the time, you got to love everybody. And I used to say, no, I don't. I only have to love the people worth loving. And Marty would laugh and laugh and say, no, you've got to love everybody. So I very rarely actually tell that story. And I notice when I do, uh, we'll see how you all are, very often people say, well, look what happened to him, you know, like as though that's what weakened him was that effort to love everybody. That's why he got assassinated. If he'd been vicious and cruel and hated all these people, he would have been safe. And I think, it, first of all, I think it's interesting that we, we put in a kind of causality there. Um, I find that, that really fascinating. And uh, it's such a complex, complex thing. Like, what in the world could it mean to love everybody or love somebody that you actually don't like, that you're actually going to fight, that you're actually going to protest against? And so... I think about this quite a lot, and um, one of the things that happened in writing the book was that I, I met with many people all across the country. I just kept having groups of people who were really teaching me and giving me stories and things like that, and the first group I did was here in New York City, and um, uh, somebody told me a great story about his dog. As a side note, he said... Most people think of a good relationship as 50-50. My dog and I were 100-100. Um, and then somewhere along the way, I was doing a group, and somebody said, you know, you're confusing me because all my life I've been taught that liking somebody's like easy. You know, that's like the, the bottom level is liking somebody. Loving somebody is that super special, extremely rare, 
high accomplishment. And he said, you're reversing it. And you're saying, we can love everybody. That doesn't mean we like them. You know, we like maybe far, far fewer people and decide to associate with far, far fewer people. And, uh, but we can love everybody. So I listened to him and I said, you're right, I am. That is really weird and, and I think very true. Um, so that's where I'm at, you know, and just sort of this, this stew. So I'm so happy to hear from you. <laughs> you don't have to like anyone at all. Yeah, hey. Um, <clears throat> I have the same sense by far, and I think that I run into that with particularly activists a lot of – there was some point at which I – sort of shifted gears. I came into practice and I thought, oh, good. What, what will happen is, you know, when people are at the pinnacle of their practice, then they will see the need to respond to the world. Like, isn't, isn't that what will happen once you get there, wherever the there is? And it turned out that wasn't true or that wasn't my experience. I was hanging out with the wrong people. And... My conclusion was is that um, without a direction that spiritual practice, contemplative practice, moved people more towards who they were in many ways, if that were, if that's an, like an honest assessment, right? That people become more deeply who they are. And if uh, social justice is not their interest, it doesn't necessarily come along. So I, I switched gears and I said, well, I'm going to go to the activists because they have it in their mind that they are going to change the world, and, uh, but not always doing it very effectively. And so if I could support them with practices that they would do what they were already doing better. And what I ran into, of course, is that they, they pretty much didn't love anyone. And that became the thing that I really focused on was this sense that, and I just knew it out of my own experience, like, well, I hardly like anyone. In fact, I don't, people always, you know, sort of tease me about this. I'm like, no, I don't really like people, but I love everyone. And that that is possible, I think, is the, the very core of how these two lives bridge, that if you can grok that, as I guess they used to say, but I like to say it now, <laughs> that if you can grok that from whichever direction you're coming from, then it all makes sense, right? And whatever, you're, whatever uh, community that you're leaning towards, that that combination of... A mind that is that wants to change the world, and a mind that is also steady and clear seeing in doing that, and has an impulse to do that from a place of love rather than from a place of anger, from a place of merely fixing, right? Merely getting it my way, even if you because even if you think it's the right way, right? There's someone else that has a another way, and then you're in this. Um, I want to say, like, irreconcilable conflict that doesn't get resolved except, I think, through love. 
And so I think it's incredibly important. Marty clearly figured that out, and so did um, that uh, Gandhi dude, too. <laughs> that we had to, that everyone holds a piece of the truth. And I think that that was so much of where Martin Luther King really understood that deeply from, uh, through Gandhi's teachings, is that everyone held some aspect of the truth. And when you're in the pursuit of justice, it becomes very, very difficult. More and more, I would say even more and more difficult, the more you're in the pursuit of justice, the more you become, you sort of imagine, I think, that you know what's right, and it's actually exactly the opposite. So that's what it makes me think of. Mm-hmm. It's, first of all, that I hardly like anyone. <laughs> and therefore, <laughs> uh, in the pursuit of justice, the only option really is to actually work on this aspect of loving everyone because then, then there is no path. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I really... Um, and thank you for that. It's beautiful. One of the things I really think about... Uh, and I keep saying, well, you know, the book title is given to me by the publisher, which is true. I, don't know about, did you I hear that little... Did yeah, you choose yeah. your title? <laughs> I did choose my title, but I have a really small publisher, and that was the, that was the choice. Right? Uh-huh. It's like, That's get, great. Yeah, get, get your choices. So when they... Oh, and along the lines of, of kind of the activist community and that question, uh, when I was given the title Real Happiness, which is the book that they have here tonight... Um, that was because the the book I was writing at the time, which is really a guide to establishing a meditation practice, had another title, and then it turned out uh, someone else was using that title in a forthcoming book. So they quickly had to come up with a title, and that was Real Happiness. And that, um, on the one hand, I thought that was a great title because I think that is something we actually yearn for. On another hand, I I feared it because I thought a lot of people think of happiness as being conflict avoidant and just endlessly seeking pleasure and mm. being sort of superficial about things. And um, and it was very interesting kind of going out into the world with the book because now I'm representing that, you know. And I thought, you know, God, I've been like a Buddhist forever. Now I'm in the happiness train, you know. Like, <laughs> can I talk about suffering, please? You know, <laughs> that feels more natural. Um, but... Uh, I really got into it because it was intriguing to me how one could see happiness as a a kind of inner resource. Mm -hmm. Because in the end, I don't see how any of us can keep giving when we feel depleted and exhausted and that that generosity is trying to come out of nothing. You know, and that having that sense of replenishing and um, some resource is is actually a gift not only to ourselves but to others. But uh, there's I find a lot of guilt, you know, like well, I can't do that because there are people suffering, you know, and, and they are suffering, and it's terrible. And and yet uh, it, it seems to me like it's just so hard without that. It's um, not, I think it's not only is it hard, well, I have to di- digress for a moment. So uh, for those of you that don't know, it was recently Sharon's birthday. Yeah. <laughs> I'm older. And, and so I'm, I'm writing on her Facebook wall because, you know, this is how we know about birthdays these days. And I, 
I write, you know, I was wishing great ease, and I got to happiness, and I was like, to the person that wrote the book, literally, <laughs> on happiness. <laughs> and so I was just a little awkward, like, hmm, okay, I'll just write that. Um, and I remember when the book came out, I, like, I had that sense yeah. of, it was like, hardcore activist, and I had that, like, um, response to it for that same reason, yeah, yeah. right? And it has felt, and, and joy is the other one, so I kind of, like, have really been living with the whole, you know, concept of joy, and especially joy being one of the, the, the fundamental abodes, and, and I was like, joy. Um... And I realized, which I think is one of the things, the reasons, as, as Jane was pointing to, that this has been the kind of like crux of my work is because in the, in, in the ways in which I respond to things as an activist, as my practice grew, I could see, oh, that's where we're having difficulty at in movement work. That's where we have difficulty at as activists. And on the other hand, I could see, oh, and this is how those of us that are doing contemplative work like disappear and what makes that easy to disappear and to uh, perceive ourselves as, right, like that what happiness means is that we're going to be conflict avoidant. If, if we were abiding by right speech, then heaven forbid we wouldn't talk about race because that's all difficult and everything. Um, so... The amount of guilt that has come as part of, I think, very much the, the Puritan foundation of American society to begin with, on top of which, on top of like a sense of survivor guilt that a lot of activists have, right? Like if they're actually positioned to be able to to struggle, which they use that word struggle, and I'm always like, no, no, we're going to get that word out of our vocabulary. But if they're going to be able, if they're in the position to do it, that means that there's a bunch of people behind them in their lives that they're that are not able to do it. So they have to do it for them because those people are suffering, and they're not. And somehow then there becomes this huge separation. And I'm always asking them, and what about you? Are you not part of that group of people that are suffering? And would you permit the people that are in your life? to kind of run themselves into the ground. And they, no, of course not. And this is what we're working towards. And I said, well, if that's what we're practicing, is to run ourselves in the ground in order to have justice, what will, at what point will we practice something different? Because whatever we practice is what we will practice. So if we're practicing running ourselves into the ground for the sake of, med to, for the sake of justice, then that's what we'll continue to practice. In the same way, one of the residents in my community used to have a um, residential community, and she, she was flying through the house, and I said, what are you doing? Where are you rushing off to? She said, I'm going to yoga. <laughs> and I said, you're rushing to go relax? And she stopped. <laughs> it's a good New York story. <laughs> right? It's like a... And so I think that the, this, these are the paradoxes that, that exist for all of us in, in the inner life, outer life. You can take a whole bunch of sets of th those things, right? Like happiness versus, you know, suffering. 
and either we can have one or have the other. So the, I think this, you know, e either we like people, and that means that we're going to like just sort of like take everyone on, or we're against them, and then that we just have to hate them. And really, the question is, how do we exist in that space? That is, it's not complex. It's just more expansive that holds the com the holds both of those things at once. That's great. Yeah. Um, I have a question for you. Yeah, okay. So for me, Sharon is really, I, I have to say, consistently the only one of the meditation teachers that are broadly known that willfully <laughs> uh, practices and is in conversations with and leads things with both young folks and younger younger practitioners and activists. And I'm very curious about what is the drive for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sure there are others, actually. <laughs> they just, you know, I'm sure there are. Um, well, you know, I, I've always been... Um, very kind of socially justice-minded, you know. Um, I grew up in New York City. I went to public schools. Mm. Um, we were really poor, and, and, and relatively speaking, you know, and because um, I had a very sort of broken family of lots of different changing components. And I went to college when I was 16, 1968, you know, so this is the State University of New York at Buffalo, and uh, instead of, like, my friend Joseph Goldstein, who went to Columbia, when he was in freshman English, he studied Proust, which made a very profound effect on him. My freshman English class, we read Ken Kesey, <laughs> you know, which had a very profound effect on me. <laughs> and there were protests, and, you know, hardly any classes, the whole, you know, people were, like, bringing, this is an awful image now, but they were bringing in actual pigs, dead pigs, to roast because we were calling the cops pigs and, you know, it was just like, that was the milieu mm -hmm. in which I uh, was sort of coming of age and then I went to India when I was 18. Mm. Um, but caring and, and especially remembering people are left out, people are forgotten. Uh, people don't have an easy voice um, in this society. That never left me, but Obviously, my you know my energy really turned toward practice and teaching, and um, it was probably uh, with um, the first. I mean, I always voted. I'm extremely passionate about voting, uh, and I'll harangue everybody from now until election day and everything I write. You know, saying you must vote. I did a thing with um, Tim Ryan, who's a congressman from Ohio. In Washington, D.C., we're supposed to be talking about mindfulness, and I started haranguing everyone in the room. I said, you must vote. And Tim said to me, are you running for office or something? <laughs> and I said, no, you are, actually. Um, but it was probably 2008 with the Obama campaign, the first Obama campaign, that uh, I was following a lot of people online who were talking about how to organize and mm. how to do voter registration and... Um, and I sort of had my people that I was, like, watching and learning from. And then one of them put something up 
uh, I can't remember if it was Facebook or Twitter or something, maybe it was the very early days of those things, saying, does anybody have an extra ticket to the talk Sharon Salzberg is doing uh, in New York? And I thought, my God, she knows my name, <laughs> you know. And I wrote to her and I said, you know, I'll get you a ticket. You know? But she didn't see it. And then uh, I was going to the bathroom at New York Insight. And this woman was coming out. So we met on the threshold. And she introduced herself to me. And it was the woman. And, and I said, you know, I've learned so much from you. And I'm, mm. you know, starting to register voters and all this stuff. And then. And then there were all these people waiting for me to come teach. So I said, I have to go. I, I said, it's just so interesting to meet you because you represent my secret life. Mm. And she said, mm. you represent mine. Mm. <laughs> then we were on the threshold of the bathroom. Then I went in and taught. But we got to be friends. And then you know, I was just more overt in everything that I was doing. Mm. So it was, a different, it was a different phase. Yeah, I think... Um that sense of a secret life in many ways actually, what I find actually really does exist for practitioners, and I would say that broadly, uh, increasingly these days, and I see that also for activists, and you know, self-proclaimed activists. There's lots of ways to be an activist. But self-proclaimed activists, and the question is how do we get each other to, in, yeah. to, to engage yeah. And that's part of the reason, or sort of like the the two um, uh, audiences, or or like the the the, the uh, making an overture to both of these groups in radical dharma to say, if you talk to you, you have something to offer. And if you talk to you, you have something to offer. Now, it doesn't mean that you all should get married, but you mm-hmm. each have something mm-hmm. to learn from each other. And I hear that in what, you, mm-hmm. what you're mm-hmm. saying. is like there's something that we can learn from each other. And I think what people tend to do is to think, oh, I'm going to have to give up everything I'm doing and I'm just going and, and go to that other thing. And then we sort of spin around in circles and try to figure out how am I going to give up the life that I'm currently doing <laughs> to do this other thing. And we do that a lot. We do yeah. this sort of like grand split. Like, mm-hmm. oh, like how am I going to get from here all the way over there? And as you were saying in your meditation, it's like just one breath. Yeah. yeah. J- just that one step, just that one thing that you can do is the beginning. We don't have to solve the 30-minute meditation and figure out how we're going to sit still and throughout the whole thing. We just have to make it through the one breath. And I think you did a fabulous job with the book, honestly. Thank you. And, um, and you as well. And uh, one of the things I feel, um, now I'm trying to think, you know, even as I'm speaking, you know, how did I come to this or did I have it? Or, you know, mm. I think one of the things that, the meditation community can well learn um, from the activist community as a kind of systems thinking. Because Mm -hmm. I do think that meditation by itself will produce a kind of good-heartedness and compassion, but I think it's very... um, uh, It's not directed at systems, you know? It's like... The person asking you for a dollar on the street, maybe for the... And people say this to me all the time. For the first time ever, I looked them in the eye and realized that was a human being, which is an enormous thing. And 
you know, and no, I gave them a dollar kinda, or I didn't give a dollar. Yeah. But I think that doesn't lead to thinking, you know, what is the housing policy in this city? That's right. You know, and uh, even though it could, you'd think that, you know, since there's so much about look deeper and look at causes and conditions, and this also may be different with different schools. Right. There may be a bigger lack in, you know, in uh, my school <laughs> um, as an example. But, you know, it came to me um, – there was this pretty famous study at uh, Northeastern where um, – these people had an eight-week meditation program, and then they were told to come to the lab for the follow-up, except the follow-up was really happening in the waiting room of the lab. They just didn't know it. And there were very few chairs in that waiting room, and there was either the meditator or sometimes it was the non-meditators, the control group, and then the rest of the chairs were taken up by actors who were all like on their phones and and then an actor was hired to come in uh, on crutches, looking like they were in terrible pain. And the question was, who got up to give up their chair? Right. And it was considered especially hard because the other actors, like on their phones, weren't going to be the first. So you had to actually be the first to make a move and give up your chair. And so some vast amount more of the meditators than the non-meditators got up to give up their chairs. And so... This was considered um, to be showing that it was a mindfulness practice they did. Mindfulness would lead to compassion. Yeah. So what I said uh, was, but did anybody ask why are there so few chairs in the waiting room? Mm. Like where are the resources of this lab going and why are they, you know, like people are coming in in pain, you know. So why, why is the money allocated in such a way so that so – that, I feel I've learned completely from people like you, you know, like, or people who have that sort of uh, skill. And I don't think it would come, uh, as far as I can tell, from my own meditation practice. It's taking another kind of education. Right. Yeah, and I think that that may be the challenge, right, is that it's not necessary. it's not a skill, it's not a given skill, it's a necessity. So the, most of the people that are driving uh, structural activism are doing it initially, at least, out of necessity or out of direct relationship with people that are in mm -hmm. a position in which that, that's necessary for them. And so then we have a challenge because so much of, as we know, the where meditation and, and mindfulness, I think even increasingly so, has landed, has been in a moderately privileged uh, community of middle class to upper middle class white folks, um, and and also tend to be older. For until more recently, there's been a sort of sudden influx of younger people again, which is great, n new generational thing. And I'm I'm obsessed with the question of and so how do we shift that? How how do we not let the current conditions of one's own circumstance be the only direct direct direction from which we uh, choose to then organize the lens or like you know throw the lens of attention in of our meditation so if our compassion only stays within inside, inside of the lens of our privilege right then we just turn it towards the things that are personal and interpersonal and very rarely does that lens because the need doesn't exist mm -hmm. and 
on the other hand, those of, which is why I ran away and went over to the activist corner, so to speak. I was like, oh, well, they have the need already. And so they're, they're, they're going to be out of their need. But we need to solve that because that we can't, I feel like we just can't let such a powerful tool, right, have, be limited by someone's current circumstances because we just keep that split in place. And there'll be a few people that will peel off. And it's the same thing when we have the conversations about race, right? Mm -hmm. People aren't going to look up and deal with issues of racial injustice and white supremacy because I'm not being affected by that. And if I don't know someone that's being affected by that and that's not directly touching me, um, it's an inconvenience and I feel bad about it, but in that empathetic way. And so it will not change. We just don't have the numbers to mm -hmm. actually move this country towards greater justice if the only driving force is whether or not people are actually feeling the pain of that particular thing, right? Then we stay split in this place of, uh, which is one of the reasons you have this, this, like, justice versus rights, right? So a lot of people are about, like, social change, and then there's social justice. Mm -hmm. And you tend to see those splits around being people, the people that are, in the, so justice tend to be people that are, uh, white folks that are lower income, um, my immigrants, you know, black people is socioeconomic, and so people that tend to be on the ladder of justice, so to speak, right? It's based on need, and people that tend to be in the area of like social change, let's you know protect the forests and those kinds of things, tend to be more in privileged circumstances, and that as a as a mm -hmm. as a split is never actually going to work for this country, and we're seeing it now in the presidential election and, and the kind of like split people are experiencing, right, the sort of like polarization. Mm -hmm. We're never going to see justice really make its way through uh, if that is the only driving force, mm -hmm. if one's direct t need is the only thing that makes us actually move. I started laughing because I had a memory about um, the conference we were at in <laughs> Cleveland <laughs> um, where I learned that. You know, listening uh, that that very point because uh, there were there was a lot at that conference, <laughs> um, but uh, somebody w uh, got up and was talking about going into prisons in Texas, mm. teaching literacy, which of course is a fantastic thing, you know, on its own. But there was a, a very um, kind of wrathful guy there is a preacher who's white but his congregation was black and he got up and he said um, I wouldn't call that so the conference says something about love and social justice so it was right in the name and he said I wouldn't call that social justice I'd call that social work he said how can you be working in the prison system in Texas without dealing with the blatant racism that is driving the whole thing and we're all sitting there like whoa <laughs> This is really intense, you know? Like, I thought, whoa, so true. But the conference was sort of like that. Right, yeah. And I, 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 my, what's curious for me is, so you, you said, like, you've always been that way, right? So you're testifying in many ways to, to that. And then, so what is the, th that, that you came with it? And I think of, uh, for instance, Bernie Glassman, who was the person that I, 
uh, was most magnetized towards in starting my Zen practice, but he already had that orientation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so in many ways you can see that that's actually showing up. And then we see it in terms of like where do people go in terms of what tradition they practice, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to tend to align towards what's already their orientation. We see that in yoga too, right? If you're like slow and easy, you want to do like a yin practice. If you're like type A, then you get into the power yoga and, and all of those kinds of things. And and so this is the this is really the critical question for me is like how do we speak differently about what these practices are about? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what justice is about? Right and and what contemplative practice is about? So what is, right? What is the thing that joins them mm -hmm. or uh, aligns them so that we have a new language for where we're coming from when we start? So that the only that we're not only looking to our current set of circumstances in order to orient ourselves, and that's for the activists too, because that's what they do. They go, oh, I don't have time, money resources, energy to be able to do contemplative practice. They only look at their current circumstances. And on the privileged side, it's like, oh, I'm not being touched by education issues, access, access to water, right? And so how do we speak about these things differently mm -hmm. so that mm -hmm. we see the, so that the love for everyone is actually what's driving us and we're lifted out of solely we have to be invested in them but we're lifted out of the solely our particular circumstances so that we can both love ourselves and include ourselves in our pursuit of justice in the current moment right so we can consider ourselves in the current moment mm -hmm. in terms of our pursuit of justice and simultaneously those of us that are not in p positions in which we're uh, infringed upon directly by the injustice and, and imbalance in our society can say, oh, I'm going to look beyond that and beyond what's happening to me. And the love for everyone is actually what is compelling me. Maybe that's what real love should have to. I I turned it in already. <laughs> <laughs> Don't improve it. Okay, <laughs> please. please. Real, real love, real, real love, in, and justice. Well, I mean, you know, I have a third section in there. I hope. <laughs> I think that conversation is great, though. No, that conversation yeah. is great, and um, maybe, and not that I have the answer because I certainly don't, you know. But some of it, I think, is. Um, because it is so rare that we do get in any way vulnerable with one another. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I just sat at this retreat in England. That was my birthday present to myself. It's like I, I pressed send on the manuscript the evening of July 31st and began a retreat August 1st, which was really nice. And uh, is a community in England that um, sponsored the retreat, you know, and had uh, hosted us and my Tibetan teacher, and um, so uh, there's this concept in Buddhist teaching called sharing the merit, like when you do something toward the good, like you meditate or you're generous or or something like that, you seek to understand something, that's considered a powerful 
forceful action. It generates a kind of energy. And then you don't just go home and savor it and say, wow, I made a lot of merit. You dedicate it to the well-being of others, those who've helped you or those you know who are Mm. suffering or whatever, and then all beings. So that would be the ritual at the end of the morning and the end of the of the afternoon um, teaching. And so uh, somehow there was one person who was ill that somebody knew. And so their name was given to the, the teacher and, and it was read mm. out loud by the translator. And, and so we all included that person as well as our own people in this kind of ceremony. And then the next day there were like five names given to the teacher, so and so has cancer, and so and so had a triple bypass, and then or was having a triple bypass, and then that person died; they didn't survive. And then, you know, this person's daughter, and then it was just like it just grew. And then there'd be this whole litany, and there were maybe 150 of us sitting in the room. You just realized, like, whoa, mm. you know, like everybody's story, either the personal story or the kind of larger story of where they're mm. at, you know, and in the world, it was just amazing. And I thought, we don't do this, you know? It's like, we don't know who's who's sitting there in that room. And uh, it was kind of extraordinary mm. just to, to realize, because that's how, I mean, I think we can feel someone's situation and feel into their pain, but we're busy, you know? Yeah, it's, for me, that's, that's fascinating, and it's been fascinating because I, I I came to that moment where I was I looked around and I was like, you know, it was actually a um, uh, somewhat a t- tense moment with my Zen teacher at the time because uh, the priest path is very much considered one in which you serve the community. That's part of the deal. And my contention was, but I, but I am going to serve my community. My community. And that I couldn't make just this newfound Zen community, like now my community, that I, I still had this tether to. And it wasn't like I grew up in circumstances of you know poverty. I you know grew up. My father's a civil servant, and so you know healthcare was there. All all of the sort of like basic needs, and and yet I was in touch with the the realities you know and increasingly so of the people that I were I was connected to that not only were in unjust circumstances but didn't even know they were right and and that felt like kind of the most um, energetic thing about my taking up a priest path was to actually be more in conversation with people that really didn't even fully get it right it was like you're so in your circumstances you don't even know that there's another world out there in which it doesn't have to be that way but this was a source of contention right there's like oh but there's you know we 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 want to kind of take pluck you out and you now come over here and i was like no i can't i can't actually do that and i couldn't understand why that was not true for everyone and there's something in our social order and our social design that mm-hmm. I think contributes to that. Like we are, there's something in the way that we are practicing in the West mm-hmm. um, that does not turn our attention towards mm-hmm. what is happening, and and we actually seem to become more insulated mm-hmm. 
like more like this is my meditation community and no one else exists anymore. And mm-hmm. We can't even have a conversation about race if you don't include all of the Buddhist teachings about it. And I'm like, we, we still live in the rest of the world mm-hmm. and there's still things going on. And so this is a fascinating this is what fascinates me is like how what is it that we that exists right in our society that continuously turns us back towards right our this individual sort of hyper individualizing mm-hmm. individualizing of even a practice that is so much about how you see and relate to the world and to the people around you and how do we cut through that mm-hmm. Because it's so time for us to cut through that. And I imagine if most of you that are here feel like it's time to. Yeah. <laughs> okay, how about if we hear from the people here? Uh, we need light. And I don't um, remember how the microphones go. So we're going to pass them around. Pass them around. Pa- there you are. Our guru, is there more light, a different distribution of light? (laughs) Real light. Real light, that's my next book. That's your next book. Please, it would be lovely to hear whatever questions, comments. Outbursts. Outbursts. You all look very in, intense, by the way, from, from over here. Like it was like very... That's so much better. Hi, thank you. Hi. This is very loud. Um, Would you say your name, please? Sure, my name is Regina. Thank you. Um, I like what you had to say about um, not necessarily liking people, and I'm just a little bit... Um, <laughs> I'm a little bit confused um, because I think maybe I don't like people either, but um, for me, there's like an aversion attached to that. So I don't know how you bring in the love thing. Um, so I would like to ask about that. And then also in terms of, especially in terms of the love thing, like I I was talking to one of my teachers about this um, a couple weeks ago, actually. Um, I have a real thing about um, violence towards women and children and especially child brides and how like most of the girls in the world are like not allowed to have an education and are sold for like at the age of six or eight to like 50 year old men for goats. And like for me, I don't feel dislike or aversion, but I feel essentially hatred for people like that. And I don't know how you get in touch with equanimity so that you can do something um, because for me, it's just, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know, I just can't get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's great. Um, I, so I think that that's the critical piece, right, is learning the difference between mm, the aversion versus not liking. It's like, and I love the way you said it, like, I don't have to associate with them. And so I think of the like, <laughs> the sense of like is like, I don't have to spend my time, I don't have to associate, I don't have to care for your habits and those kinds of things. But for me, the aversion and the experience of aversion is entirely different, right? And I don't, I don't call that, like, I don't like that person, I call that aversion. And so the experience of a kind of like, right, like a sort of, I'm going to do that with your body, right? Like a 
pull back. Uh, that's something that we actually have to work through. And my experience is that that actually has to do with the, the, the relationship that we have to ourselves. And that the path to loving everyone is, is loving ourselves and loving ourselves completely. And so the investigation into what is it that is not um, fully accepted in myself, what is it that is not, feels unworkable for me, untenable, needs to be left behind, um, or just like I feel like I can't do anything about that and that makes me hate them. I, I hate that I, it's really, I, can't, I hate that I can't do anything about that. You don't even know them. So generating hate is, I, I think, almost impossible, actually, given that you don't have a relationship. And so the hatred, I, for me, my understanding came to be that, like, oh, I'm actually hating the fact that I, I feel helpless. I, I'm hating the fact that I can't do anything about that. And when I sit with the sense of like the human being there, I don't actually feel hatred at all. I feel a kind of grief for their circumstance, for the society that allows that to be the case and they're caught up, they're just as caught up in it as every other person in, that is a component of a society that allows that to be the social order. For me, the behavior of individuals is an indication of the failure of society, right? And that's because I think about systems. And so I, and we, we in this country in particular are so vastly oriented towards this obsession with hyper-individualized justice instead of saying, what produces so many serial killers in our society? <laughs> what produces so many people that want to have guns and go off and like sh shoot and, and have mass killings? Right? Like, w whether it's mental illness, whether it's like this kind of like deep uh, um, anger and aggression that doesn't know what to do with itself, and so that becomes the answer. So, so those are the two things that I that I would say that I I, I really. Uh, that's hard to accept, and I just want to acknowledge that. It sounds like I said it like, bleh, bleh, bleh. <laughs> it's hard to accept, and it's a really, really deep practice. Um, I almost have to get behind a little bulletproof thing when I say it to activists, because they're like, what? Um, I haven't discovered anything else to, 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 be, to be true and to actually be workable. Oh, and may I just add one thing? That is for this society. I would say that that's not necessarily true for societies that are organized in a community-oriented way. The pa their path may actually be to serve others and to actually love others, right? So if you have a society that is not, for instance, Japan, right, is like, it's not organized around the, 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 the fixation on individual it, it may actually be that their path is something different. So I, when I say that, I really am talking about, so please don't point me towards like, well, but India doesn't do like this, and they're really big on like service to others. But I think there's something about, there's a paradox about a hyper-individualized society that the path may very well be 
to get hyper-individualized about how it is we relate to love. And actually, you just made me think um, before we go on. You know, I think that uh, probably that whole truth is contained in the Buddhist teaching, mm -hmm. but it's not something that is necessarily brought forth because something in what you said made me think of the story, um, some story in, in the teachings about um, the Buddha was talking to a king and... Uh, said you should be like just you should be fair and you should be generous and the king forgot to be generous and so people started going hungry in the kingdom and they started stealing and the buddha said something like um the point is not to start making laws against theft the point is to look at why people yeah. were hungry you know and that was that was with the king and and so there's there is that prompt like look deeper look at look at all these causes and conditions but it's so rarely ever applied in, in this day and age in this country in in that kind of you know assessment. Is this on? Oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> all right. You're on. Um, so when you were talking about the idea of. Our, in our society, we like people and then we love them. I and mean, when you flip that so that you don't necessarily have to like someone. I was thinking about that towards self. That, like, for the past few years, I've been thinking a lot about loving myself. But in my head, it was like, I have to like everything about myself to yeah. love myself. And I had a realization when you were talking, they're like, oh, actually, I could just have that same compassion towards myself. Yeah. That I don't have to like every part of myself. It's a process. It's, I just was wondering if you had thought about this or want to talk about more about that idea. Uh, I hadn't actually thought about it. Um, except now so this is one of those moments of like maybe the book's not really done uh, <laughs> right. but you're right of course and I think, I think part of the way I do think about it or the way it has been part of my thinking is around this sort of nouveau psychological term of self-compassion yeah. and the contrast between self-compassion and self-esteem I mean self-esteem is nice too you know like to not only focus on our faults but look at you know, our capacity to change or, you know, that morning we did that really stupid thing. We also did five great things. Let's give that a little airtime too. But self-compassion comes in when we've blown it, when we've made a mistake. And that's true. It's not make-believe, you know. It's like when I teach meditation, as we did together here, I emphasize that so much. It's not going to be 9,000 breaths before your mind wanders. It's just not likely, it's going to be two, you know, or one or maybe five, and then you're going to be gone and you're going to be way gone. And it is such an extraordinary moment mm. when we can actually forgive ourselves and start over. That is the revolutionary moment in that practice. And it's all about self-compassion, whether it's termed that or not. So that comes in not when we're like applauding ourselves for something, but we have strayed from where we want to be. And so how do we start over? It's got to be that kind of kindness. And So I think you're right, you know. <laughs> Put that in the self-esteem column. <laughs> Hi. Um, okay, so suppose we did think about... Where are you? Oh, <laughs> I'm here. In the dark. 
where I belong. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I think about systems a lot. And um, I'm wondering what you think would happen if people thought about systems, because I find it extremely frustrating that I know the answers and they're not doing it my way. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, and things that don't affect me directly, like our education system, like our uh, criminal just ju what a joke, criminal justice system, <laughs> you know, those things that, that... How misnamed. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes I say, say things like, because we do live in a, you know, very practically applying, you get the same results with this sort of you know, we live in a capitalist society. What mindset would it signify if we treated our people as a resource? Resources have to be taken care of. They need health. They need food. They need, you know, in this particular case. That would be a dramatic change in our system. How do you get there? Once you consider the system, then you feel even more <laughs> helpless because... You know, other than you doing your part, there's no scaling up. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the widespread healing. The okay, so I'm trying to say this really, really con concisely. So one of the things that I talk about, we talk about in radical dharma, is actually how race and capitalism are tied into each other, and so a capitalist uh, society. It actually does not think of resources in the way you're thinking of resources in a very different way. They're about actually expending, right? And so whether those are planetary resources, human beings as resources, right, right material resources, it, it's actually about expending those resources and utilizing those resources to one's own um, uh, personal benefit, social benefit, you know, one, one, one's benefit, right, whether that's, you know, corporate benefit, personal benefit, et cetera. So that's a very dramatic, that would be a very dramatic mindset shift on its own. And the reason that our system works the way it does is because it's intended to work the way it does. It's not, right, so it's not, I really want to say this because we often don't seem to get that it's not a broken system. It is a system that is working exactly as it is intended. And so the in inclination towards like how can we fix the system is the wrong question the question is how do we disrupt the system how do we disrupt the system and reimagine a system that actually from the ground up understands humans planet animals species in an entirely different way because our country was founded on a system of valuing and devout, therefore devaluing people based on the color of their skin. And those people then being utilized as resources based on that valuing. And it's a trickle system, right? And so some people should benefit, right? And some people should certainly not benefit. And the people that benefit should be benefit at the cost of the people that are not benefiting. And that's just important baseline for us to get. And it's hard, right, in the same way it's like hard to like think about the fact that like something is still in us that we're not uh, loving. Um, but if we don't start thinking and accepting the truth of that about our country just as a historical fact, then we're operating in a kind of fantasy land 
that wants to move the pieces around rather than understanding that the pieces were designed so that no matter what you, how you move them around, they're going to, even the people that are trying to quote unquote fix it, desperately trying to fix it with all their heart, that it was designed in order to absorb all of that effort and keep working the way that it does, including have those of us that are trying to fix it wear ourselves thin doing it, right? Which is actually feeding the system. You have to dis begin to disrupt the system. And I think that part of that disrupting the system is exactly what Sharon is saying at the very, very core level when we start having compassion for ourselves only then can we really have compassion for others. Only then can we really imagine something different, this system working differently. As long as we are locked into the entire system of like beating ourselves up, being hard on ourselves, driving ourselves the way that we do, we will allow it to and be complacent about it happening for entire communities, entire groups of communities, and we, we just, we literally do not have the imagination to change it. We literally don't have the imagination to consider something different. I don't even know what's on the other side, but I know it doesn't have to be like this. And we can't imagine that as long as we are abiding by in a system, including with our meditation, in which we are reinforcing that same cycle. Hello, Jody. Um, you spoke about a group um, of people that you are trying to educate or let them know that they are being oppressed. I don't know if educate was the right word. You seem to talk about them when you, you went back to the community. Could you just talk a little bit more about that? What is your response, um, the response that you've been getting when you go back and you try to tell them that, hey, the system is built not for you? What are they saying? Um, if I should put it plainly, if you go back to the block, you go back to your community. What are their views? Because they do view Buddhism and this idea as a thing that is not built for them. It's for the rich people. So how do they, how, how do you approach it, I'm asking? Yeah, I don't talk about Buddhism to the folks anymore. I don't really, uh, all due respect, right? I don't care about Buddhism. I'm not nation building around Buddhism. We, we nation build a lot. We're colonial by our nature. And so we get very fixated on like this other thing that we're building. I just want it to work. I want people to be liberated. And so whatever it is that I need to say, reframe, do a little jig, <laughs> you know, uh, to, to point people back to what I think is at the core of every single one of us is the desire to be happy the desire to be free. And I just am pointing back to that. And I don't care whether we call it Buddhism or Trumpism or anything else-ism. I just, right, like that, I don't get into that. I just point to the basics and let people find their way to whatever lineage, practice, tradition, religion that they want to find their liberation in as long as what they're clear about is that it is about love and liberation. 
Hi, and thanks. Um, you know, talking about compassion and love and how that can transform, well, it's certainly a process. So if there's a process that takes time, and then we're dealing with tremendous amount of injustice, whether it's societal injustice, systematic injustice, personal injustice, where's the, how do you reconcile patience with that? There you go. Is that mine? <laughs> yeah. I'll leave it to you. <laughs> I never said I had any, so I'll just give it to her. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, I find that uh, there's a kind of, to me, sort of amazing quality of patience in a lot of visionaries, you know, that uh, people who have this really big picture of life often, I find, not always, you know, but often have a kind of um, unflagging patience, you know, that probably maybe because they're connecting to something bigger, you know, whereas I may not be, for example, or, you know, people I know may not be, um, and we're caught up in the immediate ups and downs and kind of changes. And um, But I, I, the patience is a part of it, clearly, you know, because... Uh, and somebody used the word equanimity earlier, you know, like equanimity doesn't mean indifference. It really, mm. uh, I think part of it is admitting how much we don't know. Mm. Uh, because such a big part of the conditioning here is, like, bless you, instant gratification or, you know, getting it done. And you look back and who knew, you know, that this would actually lead to that. You just knew you had to do it, right? And that at some point, things evolved or moved in, in some way. So. so I don't know if it's exactly that it's, except for me, that it's ex exactly that, that acceptance is of that injustice is a part of our human condition. It's more like what you said earlier. It's like things take time, mm -hmm. you know, and there's so much unknown that, uh, I don't know what makes tipping points, you know, or a society getting galvanized. Or uh, I'm very interested in the conversation. What do we talk about and what don't we talk about? Mm. Uh, on every level, like um, one of the... Um, I mean, I don't really care about Buddhism either, actually, <laughs> you know, but I care about <laughs> meditation. Uh, you know, and so one of the... Um, I mean, this isn't really an example about activism, but more from that side. But, um, you know, we live in a time where people are talking about the one-minute meditator. And that's an interesting part of the conversation. There are other parts of the conversation where, like, people are practicing for years. And they're trying to make everything into a practice. And, or they're going on retreats, and it's not for a minute and a half. You know, and I just think the conversation needs to be very broad yeah. so that it's inclusive of many things and not just one end of the spectrum. And so that's the same thing with everything. Um, you know, and so I don't feel like as much despair, maybe, maybe I should, but I don't, you know, uh, because I think that is actually a significant movement. Because I, I think that's the beginning of many things. And so I feel a kind of happiness even. Like, look at this. 
I mean, oddly enough, Angel, and we need to stop in a minute, but Angel and I were both in the room where uh, it was the first time that people from Black Lives Matter confronted um, Martin O'Malley and Bernie Sanders. And I don't know if that was actually their first action other than online activism. You know, it might have been. We just happened to be in that room, you know, and, and all of a sudden the conversation was different. And I thought, this is so interesting. Um, you know, and, and so it's so hard to see the end of the story. It's very, very hard. But I do feel we can take a lot of, um, we can get a lot of energy from doing what we feel needs to be done now. I'm so glad you remembered his name because I kept Martin saying... Martin O'Malley? Or yes, because I <laughs> yeah. kept saying the other guy. The other guy, yeah. Yeah, so we were, we were in the room. And we were in there? What I think of it is as an urgent certainty, right? That uh, for me, the abiding in... Like, I, I feel like a sense of clarity about love as a path, right? And liberation as a, you know, quasi-destination. And I feel urgent and certain at the same time. And if that's one plus the other equals what looks like patience, I'll take it. But those coexist for me. And so there's there's both of... They co-arise. It's like... I've got to take the next step forward, and it will unfold, right? As 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 I'm cultivating this path in the right direction, right? It's like oh, I'm I'm moving, and I could feel this uh, clarity, this certainty. I think that sense of like yeah, that's where 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 we're going. And I remember in that moment that I knew that that was going to change the conversation, and. I've spoken to many people in the, this uh, conversation about Black Lives Matter, and I like there's there they have an urgent certainty in the Black Lives Matter the movement for Black Lives Matter that if they just stay and stay and stay that they could shift the conversation, and they have shifted the conversation. It was like not on the radar. It was definitely not on the presidential campaign radar, and that urgent. Which we which expressed in the action, but also a certainty that we must have this conversation and we must raise this conversation to a level at which it will not go away. That those two things are coexisting, and I think those of us that get labeled spiritual or whatever, then we get we look patient, right? It, it gets called patient, right? Because and meanwhile, the so-called activists like just look like they're like so aggressive, and so just right. So think think about like how that is unfolding and how our how our frames work about it. Um, so I think holding holding something of that together is is probably where most of us are hanging out at. All right, let's hold it together. So we need to stop. Um, there's a party in the, behind the curtains. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Thank you. And a bunch of books.